0: Well, good morning. Good to see you all. I hope you're all in good spirits. I hope you're well. <clears throat> Excuse me. This is like, let me think, one, two, three. This is my fourth session of speaking. Uh, we had a Holy Spirit day over at Great Offord, up there with Nicola Lester, and we had a wonderful time. We took Joe and I think it was Dan. And presence of God was there. It was just awesome. I know Andy Buchanan goes there as well. They, they were great, really was. They think like, they want to book us up next year. So now it's back to business, and I'm just praying for a freshness on us so that we can do the job Although though it was like I'd not done any work yesterday at all. Now, we've been going through a series called Voices with Chris, and last week Chris preached a tremendous word you know, about what God has done for us, what have we been delivered from. And really, I want to just pick it up again and I want to give us some, a, a kind of theological background to the gospel or the good news that we preach. Now, we, we call ourselves, amongst other things, evangelical. Well, what does that mean? Well, a little bit of history here. The term evangelical first came about from the Protestant Reformation. Now, this is the 1500s, 1600s, and what you need to understand was that the church at that time, there was only one church. It was called the Holy Catholic Church, and of course, the center of that church was the Pope, and the Pope had tremendous influence, both politically as well as spiritually. It impacted our nation when, of course, Henry VIII, he wanted to divorce his wife, and he had to get permission from the Pope, and the Pope said no, so his response was he started his own church. Interesting. However, during that time, there was men like Martin Luther who began to realise that there was this faith that we have is not just dependent on keeping indulgences. And what had happened was that the church had become a place where, if you wanted to get to heaven, you had to pay for indulgences. There was a lot of stuff going on which was not in the biblical. So the reformers, Luther, said, "No, it's." We are justified by faith in God, not by keeping indulgences. And in fact, what they were called were Protestants. And they were also called evangelicals because the word gospel is evangel. So they were called evangelists because they were, Protestant. They were protesting against the fact that we are justified in God's presence, not on keeping indulgences or paying for indulgences or uh, flagellation, but on the basis of faith. In the Lord Jesus Christ. Simple as that. The other issue at that time was the issue of authority. Because the See of Rome, that's what they called him, the Pope, had ultimate authority, they said no. The ultimate authority for a Christian for their practice and behavior is God's word. So those two distinctives: justification by faith and the authority of the scriptures, that all scriptures inspired by God and and, and, and beneficial for. For for teaching, for training, for justification, for righteousness, that a man and woman of God can be complete and good for every good work. 2 Timothy 3:16. That's the position that the reformers took, for the Protestants took, the evangelicals took, and we are evangelicals. We still have that position. Now it's important to say that because you can lose it with the type of you know church we have, and we don't talk about theological things in the in that sense. It's good to know that's what we mean by evangelical, that we believe that we are justifying God's presence because of what Jesus has done and the authority in our lives is the scripture, not a particular person. Now then, today, we're going to consider again what we have been saved from and how God, rich in his mercy, has brought us back into fellowship with him. this message of reconciliation, this message that we've been teaching and preaching is at the heart of the evangelical gospel, that God has made a way. But let's first consider our position, where we stand. And I'm going to take you back. Now, you see, my background is evangelical. My dad, when he came to faith, he he, we went to an evangelical church that preached the gospel. And we lived in London, North London. And every Sunday evening, my dad would go up to Westminster Chapel to hear Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Now, in, in the 20th century, he was one of the finest expositors of the word of God. People would come many miles to hear the doctor. Now, some of you don't know I'm talking about that. Andy and some of us will know that he was—he he was... Not, he was, he was Uh, He was a person that people looked to. He was honoured. He preached the word with such clarity. So, my background is that. So, when we come to look at our condition before God, we have to come to Romans. Because Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, between 1957 and 1968, took the book of Romans, and every Friday night... From that period, from 57 to 68, he expanded God's Word and he expanded the gospel of what we call the the salvation, how we are saved. Clinically, he went through it. And by the way, he was a medical doctor, not a theological doctor. But he had many theologians sitting at his feet. So what we're going to do is we're going to go to the book of Romans. And we're going to start out. At Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. Because this is where, this is our condition before God. This is our condition. The wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So what Paul is saying is this, that and if you read the chapters he's saying whether you think you are a, a pagan or whether you think you're a religious person if you organize your life apart from god you are ungodly and because of that god's wrath is upon you now what is god actually angry against about what is he upset about well My rebellion. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, in the garden, God provided for Adam and Eve everything they needed to live well. But they listened to the serpent. Now, you've got to understand that the serpent, the devil, he'd already been kicked out of heaven. So he was already upset. He was kicked out into a domain, which was not his domain. It was our domain. And when he came to Eve, he came to Eve with the temptation. He said, now, did God say? And here's the key thing. He said, if you eat the fruit, you will be like God. Oh, that was the temptation. That was the thing that got him kicked out of heaven because he tried to be like God and God kicked him out. So instead of us listening to God, we listened to the serpent and thus we ate of the fruit and thus we said we will become masters of our own destiny, our rebellion. Everything changed When Eve ate the fruit and then gave it to Adam. And Adam should have said, where would you get this from? But he didn't say that, did he? He just ate it. And then when God said, what have you done? He said, it's this woman. And the woman said, it's the snake. And the snake didn't have anywhere to go. (laughs) And that issue of blame shifting has been something that we all do. We're always running because of sin. The second thing in eating that fruit, we... Became independent, my independence. We said, No, Lord, you are not the creator, we are the creator. We will make the decisions because now we know the difference between good and evil. So we'll decide what's good, we'll decide what's evil, we'll decide to change the laws when it suits us. And it's interesting to look at some of our legislation, the things that the scripture specifically says are wrong are now right. Paul, in the Apostle to the uh, Corinthians, says quite plainly, he said, look, if you do these things, you will not enter the kingdom of God. And he lists the whole stuff, the effeminate, the immoral, the fornicators, the idolaters. If you do these things, you will not enter the kingdom of God. He's quite plain about it. But you see, when you become master of your own destiny, you can decide what you're going to do and what you're not going to do. What's comfortable and what's uncomfortable. So we have a society that has desensitized us to sin and desensitized us to what God's standard is. The other thing that God's upset about is our unwillingness to allow him to be the creator and to submit to his lordship and his leadership. You know, if we're going to write an epitaph over this century, it's, I did it my way. So as we come to our main text this morning, we need to understand that the Bible's view of sin is it separates us from a holy God whose eyes are actually too pure to even look at sin. A God who's not only opposed to sin but also to the sinner. Now, I found that difficult. Because, you see, we always say, God, you know, we love the, the sinner, not the sin. But the reality is that sin isn't some nebulous kind of uh, in diaphanous type uh, night. He just... It's, it's, sin is in people, and it's people who sin. So if God is opposed to sin, he has to be opposed to the... Thank you. That's uncomfortable for us, because we like to separate the two. But no... He's opposed to sin, and he's opposed to the sinner. So then, how does a holy God deal with our sin, yet maintain his integrity? Because here's the issue, friends. Our God is holy. Our God can't even look at sin. Our God says this, that the soul that sins must die. So he can't let us off. Because his tension is he loves us. Oh, how he loves us. We've been singing it. But at the same time, he is God. And there has to be someone in the universe who is just and who is righteous, as well as loving. And as Chris said so eloquently last week with such passion, that Jesus didn't have a problem with talking about God's mercy and God's judgment. He didn't have a problem with it. We have a problem with it. Because we love the compassion and the mercy side, but we don't like to talk about the judgment and the wrath side. The scripture tells us, it's appointed once for a man to die, then comes judgment. Paul says to us that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive that which we've done in the flesh, good or ill. Every one of us will one day stand before that throne and everything that we've done in our lives will come before us and it will be judged and it will be salted with fire, and that which is from God will stand, and that which is not will be consumed. Not a comfortable message, but it's in the book. And we have to preach the whole book, not the bits that we like. Because you, know, well, you know you're like me, you want to read the bits love and comfort and. yeah, you don't read them, but you want to read those bits. You don't want to read judgment. And, and, and standing before God and wrath. and Yeah, I was reading, the, the old, you know, as in my readings, the Old Testament, and in Exodus there, the people come to the mountain, and God comes down on the mountain, and there's fire and smoke and lightning, and it says, even if an animal touches the mountain, they must be slain. And the people, it says, quaint. And then God spoke out the commandments, and they were all shaking. And they actually said, let not God speak to us, send Moses up. We can't deal with this. This is too much. But it's in the book. But he's also a God of mercy. So anyway, let's come to our text now. Romans chapter 3, 21 to 25. And if you get a chance to read some theology, read Dr. Marty Lloyd-Jones' book, Romans, Atonement and Justification. It's superb because he's done all the theological bits and he's there... Is puts it before us so that you can read it and understand it. And what Paul has done in chapter one is told us that whether you're a pagan or not, you've got no excuse because your conscience tells you that there must be a God. Then he talks to the Jews in chapter seven and says, just because you, chapter two beggar, if just because you've got the law, it doesn't mean that you are more favoured. Because if you don't keep the law, you're in no better place than the pagan because the Ten Commandments are like a chain. If you break one, you've broke them all. Then in chapter three now, he says, he comes in, and says, well, okay, this is a situation. We are all under sin, but now. And if you read the book, you'll find that that but now is the turning point in chapter three, and here we go. But now, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. (sighs) We only have 10 minutes or 15 minutes to look at this and we could spend a long time breaking this down. But let's just go at it. Paul declares that there is a righteousness that can be attained but not on the basis of trying to keep the rules. So, Point number one, you will never be able to bring yourself and, to God and say that you've kept the rules because everyone knows that we can't keep the rules. And Christianity actually isn't just about keeping the rules. So we find ourselves in a situation that we need another way to get to God. We need a righteousness based, here it is, on faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Because we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's standard. Whether you're a pagan or whether you're a Jew, whether you are middle class, upper class, lower class, any class, we've all failed. Whether you live a good life and you do good things, and you give money to charity, or whether you've lived a a, a reckless life. The scripture says we're all under sin, the universality of sin. What is the redemption that is Christ Jesus, is in Christ Jesus? Well, let's look at, narrow down to verse 25. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. Through faith. To demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. Let me go backwards and go forwards. I'm doing theology this morning, so just stick with me. In the Old Testament, there was a tabernacle. And when God said, make the tabernacle, one of the things he made, asked them to make, was an ark of the covenant. You've all heard of it. You've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. (laughs) All that stuff, yeah? Well, that Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, and they had two cherubims on the end at the top and a mercy seat, and in it were the, uh, the, 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 the buds that uh, Aaron's rod budded. There was the manna, and of course, there were the two tablets. And what would happen once a year, whether it be the tabernacle or in the temple, is that the high priest would go in on behalf of the people and make a sacrifice and an animal had to die and the blood was sprinkled between the cherubims on the mercy seat and that was atonement for the all the nation all the sins that had been committed when paul says forbearance what god has passed over sins what he was talking about the fact is that that act was a shadow it wasn't It was something that was looking, it was a symbol of looking forward to what God was going to ultimately do with the ultimate sacrifice, who was Jesus. That's what Paul is talking about. Now, what does the word propitiation mean? Because here we have a theological problem. And if you look at your Bible, if you have an MIV, it doesn't say propitiation. It says atonement, or if you have an RSV, it says expiation. You say, well, so what? Hmm. One of the problems we have in the church generally is that there are a group of people who like to talk about God's love, but they do not like to talk about God's wrath. And their thinking is simply this, that how can a God of love a God of mercy, be angry. This is not in character. Now, that thinking is actually influenced by Greek philosophy, which had gods that were basically passive. So it's influenced our theology. So in some Bibles, they're quite happy to deal with the issue of Expiation, I, atonement, I, someone having to have to shed blood to to, to cleanse away sin. But the idea that God is angry is something that is anathema to some groups of people. But Paul says no. The word is propitiation because not only is Jesus dealing with atoning for our sin, I, paying the price by the shedding of blood, he's also dealing with God's anger against our sin. Well, according to Dr. John Owen, and I got this from the book, there are four key elements to the word propitiation. One, an offense to be taken away. Two, a person offended who needs to be pacified. Three, an affirming per, uh, offending person, a person guilty of the offense, and this is the atonement bit, a sacrifice or some other means of making atonement for the offense. So what what is Paul saying that God has provided for us in Jesus, the perfect sacrifice? Here it is. Our offenses have been taken away by Jesus becoming sin for us. You see, everything that they did in the temple was pointed to that day when Jesus, the Son of God, who came down from heaven, and this is the wonderful thing I think about the work of pride of salvation, that God saw our plight. He saw our condition. He looked to the man, Abraham, but he couldn't do it. He looked to Noah, he couldn't do it. He looked to a nation, Israel, they couldn't do it. He looked, he looked, he looked. Then he thought, I'll come myself. And God contracted to a span incomprehensibly became a man and he came and was born of a virgin Mary and he experienced what it was like to be a human being try to imagine this that Jesus the son of God steps down and Richard read it steps down from heaven becomes obedient to an earthly father walks upon the roads of of Jerusalem and Judea, experiences tiredness, sorrow, anguish, and then is obedient to that point that he's prepared to go to the cross as the perfect sacrifice because he lives a perfect life. And he becomes sin for us. The perfect sacrifice. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might be rightly related to God. I love the picture that Chris painted last week of those two grizzly bears. The grizzly bears coming towards the ranger and then the mother jumps out in front and stops the big grizzly bear from getting the guy. And Jesus jumps out in front and he takes it for us. Point number two. God's anger over my sin and your sin is appeased and placated by one person, Jesus. If you read Isaiah 53, as we do at Easter time, we read there that he was bruised for our iniquities. He was crushed, here it is. He was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves teeth him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. In other words, God smote him instead of smiting us. He was crushed for our iniquities. He took the punishment that we should have taken. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon who? Him. And by his scourging, we are healed. And all we like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Jesus pacified God's anger against our sin fully on the cross. Once for all. The certificate, point number three, consisting of decrees against me and you that were hostile to us, Jesus has taken them out of the way. Colossians 3, 2 to 13, 13 to 15. Whatever, you know, whatever sin that you had, Jesus has taken it. Whatever decrees that allowed Satan to attack you have been removed, erased by the blood of Jesus and nailed to that cross. Yes, someone can say Amen. And finally, he who knew no sin becomes the perfect sacrifice for us. We call it, posh word, substitutionary atonement. You should have been on that cross. I should have been on that cross. But Jesus went to that cross. And he became sin. He became the sin center of the universe. And even God couldn't look on him while he was taking the sin of the world. But he did it for us. And he sealed our pardon with his blood. What a savior, what a savior. This God who loves us, but yet is holy, provides a way for you and I in the person of Jesus, who is a a propitiation. And it says, whom he set forth as a propitiation. Which means that he is the perfect sacrifice. Our offenses have been removed, not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy has done it, by the washing and regeneration and renewing in the holy Ghost. that God's anger has been placated and God has been appeased because he was crushed for our iniquities. He was bruised for us. That our sin has been erased and removed because of that work at Calvary and nailed to the cross. And Jesus is the perfect sacrifice for us. Now, what does this mean? Now, the challenge that we had was that people would preach this and we would enjoy it. But you see, we would think that the becoming a Christian and this experience, this transaction that takes place, that he takes my sins a once-for-all deal. Well, it is, but the process of God redeeming us from our sin continues. You say, what do you mean by this, Dennis? Well, I've had the privilege of being a Christian now for some 30-odd years. But even now, this process of redemption is still working in my life. You say, what do you mean? Well, in my personal life, I was praying and I said, Lord, shine your light into my life and shine your, to shine, shine your light into my life to show any darkness in me. And Lord, bring your life where there's death in me. Someone said to me, that's a dangerous prayer. I said, well, yes, okay. Because I'm in business with God. I ain't playing with this stuff. And what I'm finding is that the Holy Spirit is working in my life and showing me things that I was not aware of, that are sin, that I was not aware of. But I can bring that to the cross. And when I come to the cross, I have an advocate, yes. I have one, someone who has become sin for me. Someone who has removed God's anger and placated it. Someone who is the perfect sacrifice. And when I bring my sin there, I can leave it at the cross. As I confess my sin and as I receive his forgiveness. And thus the process of redemption continues. And for each one of us, knowing these truths intellectually and cognitively is one thing. But the whole idea is that experientially as you walk your Christian life, As the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, you appropriate what Jesus has done in your reality so that you are able to move on from where you are in terms of your walk in God and you begin to mature and the the power of sin is beginning to be broken in your life and what happens is the cross is setting you free from sins that have been committed by you, sins that have been done to you, and the effects of your response to the sins that have been done against you. See, so the cross deals with your initial sin, but the cross is dealing with your, that's your own personal sin, but also the sins that have been done against you. And some of you, there have been sins done against you that you're not aware of, but you're still reacting to it. And you don't know it. And then the Holy Spirit becomes into your life And he begins to show you why you respond like that in that situation. And he takes you back to a situation. Yesterday, we had a wonderful privilege of working with a lady. And she said to me, you know, I feel I'm not worthy. And what the Holy Spirit did was remind her, we were talking about school. And where did it come from at school? The teacher was basically saying, you'll never turn out to be anything. So she always had this sense of failing. She'd got a degree, she'd got qualifications, but she never felt she measured up. So we're able to, the Holy Spirit is able to come and minister his healing there as she releases that situation. And Jesus comes into that situation with her there and she sees him. And he's taking the abuse, he's taking the negative words. And she's able to be set free. And when we, at the end of the meeting, we see a person who's full of joy. That's the power of the cross. That's, right. That's the power of the cross. That's how the cross works. And what I realized was that great theological evangelical preaching, which just impacts people's minds and stops there is not the deal. The deal is it has to be appropriated on a daily basis as the Holy Spirit works in us and reveals to us what is going on in our lives so we're able to redeem that which the enemy took away from us and we become healthy people and we begin to walk in the freedom and the liberty that Jesus won for us at Calvary. Yeah, I'm preaching this morning. <laughs> <laughs> and our goal in preaching these things is not to make you feel bad, but to make you realize what Jesus has done for us. And this morning, if you're not a follower of Jesus, we'd like to give you the opportunity to start this journey. And at the end of service, you know, you can come and we'll pray for you, that you would like, if you would like to become a follower of Jesus and understand that Jesus has died for your sin, and it doesn't matter what your condition is, there is one who has paid the price in full for us, that we might now have a relationship with God when we come from enemies to friends to sons and daughters of the King. This is the work of the cross. And then the Holy Spirit is working with us so that the work of the cross is appropriated on a daily basis as we are being saved. And the works of darkness in our lives are being undone by the power of the cross. You see, friends, that's what... Restore and all of those programs are about, they're not something so that we're about navel-gazing. It's all part of the gospel. It's all part of the deal. You see, the preaching of the 70s and 80s was about a personal relationship with Jesus. The people came to Jesus and that was it, and they confessed their sins, but there was stuff in their life that was still there. And they thought, well, that's it. No, it's not. Paul said, we are being same, continuous tense, which means that the cross and what Jesus has done and our understanding of that and our appropriation of that is essential if we are going to reach our full maturity as the people of God. Yeah, thank you. So there we have it. This is our God. This is our God. This is the salvation we have. This is what we're excited about. That we are no longer under his wrath, as the first song was telling us. But we've been brought into a place that we can have fellowship with him. That Jesus, son of God, our savior, has done everything. He's the perfect Sacrifice. He's placated God's anger against us. He's erased our sin and brought us into a place that now we can have fellowship with him at Access and we can come, whatever our condition, boldly to the throne of grace to receive mercy and grace for our time of need. Amen. Amen. Shall we stand? <laughs> Amen. Can we have the band up? Bless God. Father, we want to bless you and praise you for this great salvation. We want to thank you for our Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that he's taken away our offense that were against us. Thank you, Lord, that he has pacified your anger against us. We thank you, Lord, that he did this once for all. And he now sits at the right hand of the majesty on high, having made purification for our sins once for all. And Lord, thank you that each day of our lives, As we invite you, Holy Spirit, to shine your light into those areas of darkness in our lives. And as we allow you, Lord, to speak into the darkness into our lives, in our lives. So, Lord, as we bring our stuff to you. And we confess our sins. And receive forgiveness and receive healing. We are becoming more like you. Lord, we thank you for what you did at Calvary. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you are a merciful God. That you're full of goodness. That you've provided a way for us to become sons and daughters of the King. We bless your name. Amen.